everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. How many, can I ask, read a little bit from 1 Corinthians this week? Yay, good, 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 good. And so let me just uh, test you, um, see if you've been listening. Uh, was, was Corinth at this time sort of a podunk Hicksville, or was it sophisticated hipster urban? What? The latter, yes, okay. Hip urban city. Is Paul writing to sort of lifelong mature Christians or brand new immature baby Christians? Brand new, very good. Um, is the issue predominantly Paul's writing about sort of cheap grace, license, or like legalism, faith by works? Sorry? Nope, cheap grace, all right? Cheap grace of just like, I can do whatever I want because, you know, God will forgive me. Um, is Corinth itself more of a secular place or more of a spiritual place? I uh, heard both. You're both right. You're both wrong. I, I don't, it's a trick question. I don't know the answer uh, because it depends on how you define the word spiritual. It's, it's sort of a Rorschach test of your interpretation of the word itself. Remember, uh, this may be the only Christian church in town at the time, but we know of at least 26 holy sites. Uh, spaces or, or temples at that time. And, and it's only an hour drive by car to Athens, Glenn knows this, where uh, in Acts 17, Paul says to a crowd of Greeks, you know, hey, I can tell you folks are super spiritual because you have all these uh, statues to small G gods all over town. In fact, I see this altar over here to an unknown God just to make sure you got all your bases covered. But uh, let me tell you about the real big G God who is powerful and real and, and you won't have to keep track of all these thousands of mini gods. And so by that standard, you could say Corinth is a very spiritual place. Um, you know, there's this comedian who says, uh, like when girls tell me I'm not religious but I'm spiritual, I like to say, I'm not honest but you're interesting. You know what I mean? Like, I hear that a lot. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know, you hear that? Just me? You don't like my every, every woman voice? <laughs> um, so, as we get into the topic today, what makes someone spiritual? Uh, it seems like a, a simple topic, but it's very complicated because we don't have this agreed-upon definition of what it means to be spiritual. You go into the bookstore, there's a huge spirituality section. All kinds of uh, movies and music are around this topic of spiritual themes. And so the question is, how do you know if you're spiritual? What makes someone spiritual? 
And outside the church, there's, there's tons of definitions. Like, do you meditate a lot? Are you mindful, you know? Do you, do you eat free-range meat and recycle and do yoga? Like, can you do downward dog or whatever? You know, if you're spiritual then. Or are you a good person if you give money to charity or if you travel overseas to so-called sacred spaces? You know, maybe then you're a spiritual person. And then within the church, we have all these different definitions of what it means to be a real spiritual person, depending on what church you go to. Some churches, you know, you have to speak in tongues, and then, then you go varsity, right? Then you're spiritual. Other churches, you know, you memorize all kinds of uh, King James Version-only verses, and then you're spiritual. And it's important for us to ask the question because we actually live in a very spiritual country, just not a very Christian one. How many would agree that we, yeah. And, and so we are in a lot of ways like old school Corinth. And the people in Paul's church had massive disagreements of what it really meant to be spiritual. Some said if you're married, then you're really spiritual. And others said if you're single, that's when you're really spiritual. And some said if you're sexually active, and others if you're chaste, and one of those two make you spiritual. And if you follow one leader more than another, that makes you spiritual. This is what it really means to be a spiritual person. And so Paul tries to clear all this up um, and, 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 and make the understanding of what it means to be spiritual. And it really comes down to this. It's not necessarily something we do. Being spiritual is something that God does to change us. And so let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. And uh, if you have your Bible, read along with me. And if not, it's up on the screen. It says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's Jesus. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But, but God has revealed it to us by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. What he's saying is that non-Christians don't think like Christians. Christians, if, if their Bible is open and their heart is open and the Holy Spirit is at work, they don't work off human speculation. They get divine revelation. Because of that, Christ followers have totally different views about themselves and about life and about death and about eternity, all the big questions, then they would receive from the answers that come outside of the church. You know, the world has its wisdom. It leans on its teachers and its psychiatrists and its politicians and pundits and scientists and celebrities. And it has the wisdom of collective human speculation. But when the church comes together, um, the Bible is supposed to be open, and Jesus is supposed to be exalted, and the Spirit is speaking, and people are supposed to hear something that is actually 
countercultural, um, different than what they're hearing from all the other cultural preachers who are preaching a very different and contradictory message to what Jesus is. So when you, when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you shouldn't be saying, yeah, I could have got this at a self-help seminar. This is the exact thing I'm hearing from, from Dr. Phil or, or Tony Robbins, right? If so, if that's what you're hearing, it's probably not Holy Spirit wisdom. It's, it's just the wisdom of the age. And, and what the church believes is different than what those who are not Christ followers believe. Like what? Well, honestly, about everything that truly matters. And what Paul is saying is that human beings don't know what in the world God thinks about anything because only God knows what God thinks. None of us knows what God's thinking unless God, by the Holy Spirit, reveals to us what God is thinking. And ultimately, Jesus himself is revealed in Scripture as as truth incarnate. It says here, he's the Lord of glory. And at, at any point, if any name, person, trend, or fad, or opinion is lifted up in knack over Jesus, then something has gone horribly wrong. Um, verse 10, it says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows the spirit? a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. We don't, we don't know what someone is thinking. We don't know what God is thinking unless God would reveal it by his Holy Spirit. And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human Wisdom, you know, not just the stuff we learned in philosophy class and watching CNN, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Look, um, none of us is born with a, a theology, right? None of us is born with a theological language. Somebody needs to teach us words, God, heaven, sin, grace, salvation, the whole ball of wax. And, and so we need to be humble enough to learn. And if they do their job well, we'll learn spiritual truths from spiritual teachers. Um, and they'll teach us with, with spiritual words. You know, parents, youth leaders, uh, king's kid volunteers, pastors, songwriters, the words we use as Christians are often very different, right? Um, how many of you, when you became a Christian, you know, one of the first things you had to learn was this whole new vocabulary of stuff, yeah. And, you know, words like sin and faith and sanctification and salvation, all these words that nobody else really uses in the culture. Brittany used uh, some words this morning of sacred. What does that really mean? We, we learn spiritual truth through unpacking spiritual words. I have three daughters with three different middle names, Grace, Faith, 
and hope. And, and those are simple words that everybody kind of knows, but there's such a depth of meaning to unpack for the, for the truly spiritual. Words open up these new understandings so that, that you and I can understand really who God is. I've been thinking a lot lately of, of what it means for God to be sovereign. There's a lot to unpack there. There's, a lot to, there's layers there. And it's not something I'll fully comprehend in, in this lifeline. Lifeline? Lifetime. I'd like to buy a lifetime. Um, do you remember when Ed Leto was uh, sharing up here um, about sometimes he'll just spend hours contemplating the, the attributes of God? Uh, what, does, uh, what does his omniscience mean? You know, what does it mean, uh, the, f- the fact that he is all-knowing? Um, he'd just meditate on that. Um, how does it affect my Christian walk and my love of God? And just think on those things. I know, David, you've been thinking a lot about the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify God? And what does it mean to live for his glory? Which is a, f- a phrase found here in 1 Corinthians. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. And so what Paul is saying that, yeah, Christians need a new vocabulary, not in, in some academic, intimidating, or self-important way, certainly not in a kind of a clicky Christianese way, but in a way that you go, okay, uh, sin, I get that. It's, there's something in me that wants to rebel against the goodness of God and, and the authority of God. Okay, I, I got that. And grace, uh, God loves me, unmerited favor, unconditional affection, undeserved, unearned, got it, grace. So Paul speaks of that in verse 14. He says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So first thing is, dear Christian, um, do not be upset when non-Christians don't understand what the heck you're talking about and, and maybe even think that you're nuts because the Bible says they can't understand. Uh, it, it takes a miracle where the Holy Spirit often he has to open our blind eyes and soften our hardened hearts and unplug our, our plugged ears. And it's a, it's a, it's a miracle, really, because he gives us faith. He changes our rebellious nature. He causes us to be new creations and brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. I had a young man come in this week, just called the church out of the blue. He Googled um, church new market and just called us and said, I, can I talk to a pastor? And he didn't have any sort of coworker or parent or anybody lead him to Christ. He was completely addicted to fentanyl and he was ready to take his own life and he just called out to God and said, God, I'm at the end and if you're real, would you reveal yourself? And he woke up the next day, he says, like uh, a Damascus Road experience with zero craving for fentanyl with uh, a new... um, love of God that he couldn't understand or articulate, this kid is excited about Jesus. He just, wanted, he just wanted to soak it all in. Tell me everything you know about Jesus. I mean, 
this was exciting. This is what we, we live for, right? Praise God. Somebody say amen to that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he, he articulated how he didn't even have a, a love for God. In fact, he was a, he called himself a devout atheist. And now, unexplicably, he loves Jesus. He, he wells up with tears when he talks about Jesus. That was nothing he did. It was a gift from God, and it takes a miracle, really, um, to, to understand what he's done and, and, and to understand the mind of God. It's a miracle when any of us really becomes a Christ follower and when any of us truly understands something spiritual. So, so when the non-Christian uh, doesn't understand, don't take it personally. Uh, the Bible says that, that you're talking a different language. And, and what we usually do when we're in a different country or talking to someone where there's a, a language barrier, what do we usually do? We just say it slower and louder. <laughs> where is the toilet, I said. And so knock, knock that off. They're speaking another language. And so don't freak out when you're not always understood. It's very hard to respond to God if you're spiritually dead, right? I mean, how many of you go to a funeral and you're looking at the guy in the pine box and you're like, you want to go for nachos later? Huh? You want, are we going to have to pull a weekend at Bernie's and put some sunglasses on? You know, the point is, is that non-Christians are spiritually dead, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. It doesn't mean they're unintelligent. It just means that they don't get it yet. And so the most important thing is to love people, pray for people, pray that the Holy Spirit would, would open up their understanding, soften their heart. Um, Christians, don't get angry at non-Christians. Uh, we need to be patient and compassionate and, and, and just pray that they're, the spiritual eyes of their heart would be opened. And uh, it's really the Holy Spirit that does that. We can't manipulate it or cajole it or bully it. So many Christians are mad at non-Christians because non-Christians don't understand things that non-Christians don't understand. Say that 10 times fast. So pray for your friends and your family and your coworkers. Love them. And um, it says here in verse 15 that the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. And, and here the point is that Paul is righteously judging the people in the church. He's going to tell them a little later to judge uh, the sinful person in the church. It means that, it means that all Christians, all y'all who consider yourself a Christ follower, have wisdom and discernment and the ability to actually judge each other, other believers, um, family, but they, they don't have to subject their judgments on non-Christians. Just love them. So, so what that means if you're a Christ follower, other Christ followers in your church should be able to lovingly speak into your own sin and error. Um, it doesn't mean that everybody gets to gets to tell us what's the truth, but we actually, we hand select those who have relationally earned the right to speak into our life. Sometimes hear hard things, you know? Those who have shown spiritual wisdom and have kind of earned that right relationally. 
Verse 16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? Who knows what God's thinking? And, and who thinks that they have the right to give God advice? But we have the mind of Christ. So, so maybe the question um, as to whether or not you are a spiritual person is this. Do you receive spiritual wisdom that may in fact contradict the wisdom of the world? Um, do you receive spiritual truth gladly? Will you allow yourself to be led, guided, uh, convicted, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit? Will you repent of sin? Um, As you open your Bible, will you ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and interpret it for you and then actually follow that leadership and that authority in your life? And I'll tell you what, what's cool about this is, is that to be a great church Um, we don't need like the hottest band or the best preacher or a crystal cathedral to meet in. You know, we don't need to be brilliant or funny or well-resourced. None of those things are bad. But being a great church, a healthy church, it just means a spiritual people who are obedient to Jesus, following the Holy Spirit. And it, it takes some humility and a receptive heart that loves Jesus and and welcomes the Holy Spirit, that's what it takes. So it's more about your attitude than it is about your intellect, Uh, whether or not you call yourself spiritually mature. So if you have kids or if you love kids, this has got to encourage you because they may not even be out of kindergarten, but they can deeply love Jesus and, and follow Jesus and and even understand in their limited way the good news of the cross. And that makes them more wise, more mature, more discerning and sophisticated than a spiritually blind culture. And so Paul is talking about what it means to be a spiritual people. And uh, as you remember, like this letter wasn't read for sort of personal devotions. It was read out loud in a church And so he's also talking about what does it mean corporately to be a spiritual people, a spiritual church. And so if you skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 9, he has has a little talk about what a healthy, well-architected church looks like. Now, I bet some of you have come from churches that weren't well-architected. There were splits and fights and immorality, and some bad use of money, and people got hurt. Some people spiritually maybe haven't even come back. And, and so this is important because if a church is not well-architected, if it's not put together well, the things fall apart, and the reputation of Jesus is harmed. You know, people think poorly of Jesus because of his people at times, Um, not to mention the Christians who get hurt in the process. And so because of our love for Jesus and our love for people, we want to do a good job being trustworthy and um, and a well-put-together church. And that's what Paul's talking about in this section of the letter. He says, chapter 3, verse 9, for we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So churches, even if you're, in a denomination, um, churches don't belong to the denomination. Um, if they have a lot of pastors, 
Churches don't belong to the pastors. If churches, if they have a lot of people, they don't belong to the people. Churches that may have some generous, very generous donors that um, uh, really resource the church, they are not controlled and owned by generous donors. We belong to God. Churches belong to God. And our goal is to obey God and to honor him and serve him and worship him. And so ultimately... NAC, New Market Alliance Church, belongs to God. And so Paul is going to metaphorically refer to God's people as a building. And then he raises the question of sort of metaphorical architecture. And if you're an architect, huh? Is it Brad? Yeah? Um, ask your architect questions to Brad. Um, you know how important architecture is. If you if you live in a place that is falling apart, you know how important architecture is. The, the architect of any building or organization is, I mean, it's just, it's critical. And, and so how you build or architect a company or a church or a relationship, whatever it is, it needs to be built well or it collapses. Right now, Hunter and Danita are starting to learn how to architect a marriage well. Right from, the, right from the beginning. So Paul says that in verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And what Paul's talking about is, is leaders in the church um, you know, need to work on the church. There's systems and policies and strategy and good governance and procedures and you know, actually being aware of federal laws and provincial laws and CRA rules, and we, you know, we need to abide by them um, so we don't end up you know, doing prison ministry from inside, right? Um, and this is not sexy. This is not cool. Uh, this is not the fun part of ministry. Playing in the band, that's cool. You know? uh, being in the drama, that's cool. Leading is cool. You know? But charts and graphs and bylaws and budgets and legalities and technicalities and plan to protect. You know, most of you, your eyes are glazing over already. Mine are starting to a little bit. But there's a handful of you, you know, who, a precious few who actually perked up a bit. Did someone say governance? Um, did I just hear policy? Have you thought of indemnification insurance? Um, you just come alive. God has wired you differently. He didn't wire me that way. Uh, do you realize how grateful I am for the, for the Paul Timgrens of the world, for the, the Johans and the Byrons and the, the Glenn Hunts? And the, you know, we need you. I'm so grateful for the executive team members who, who do diligently what so many of us just are lousy at. I'm grateful for a guy like like David Clout, who, you know, in a church membership meeting can go, you know, Mr. Chairman, the motion needs to be seconded before the discussion can take place. And I, I don't even understand what he's talking about. I love that he loves his church and he wants it to be structured well. So thankful, really. And Paul says this, this church belongs to God and that an expert builder, a good architect, uh, or good architects are needed if we're to do anything of value. So he says, you gotta be careful how you build. And then in verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. And here's what he's saying, at the foundation of everything, 
has to be Jesus. You can have good kids ministry, good youth ministry, good women's ministry and retreats. You can have all these great things going, but they need to be built on Jesus Christ. Apart from that, it'll, it'll fall apart. It can't, a church can't be built on personality. It can't be built on tradition, anything other than Jesus. I know this seems obvious, but it's sad how uncommon it actually can be. And then he moves on to talk about the different materials used. He begins in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. How many of you lived in a place where you just, the materials were not good, you know? It feels like it's falling apart. The, the, it's made of particle board and, you know, aluminum foil siding. And you're like, what kind of heap is this? And, you, you know, you can tell when something has been built with good quality, built to last. You know, my brother Steve Robinson knows what it means to build something that lasts. And you can also tell when it's been thrown together, when the materials are no. Let me put it this way. I don't want to be an Ikea church. No offense to my Swedish brothers and sisters this morning. (laughs) But Paul is saying that churches need to be built on good materials. And I'm not talking about the physical building, though that is part of it, I suppose. I'm talking about leadership development and procedures, accountability, protection of kids, protection of doctrine from crazy false teachers, that the church is architected in such a way Um, that there are good things in place to make the church healthy and solid and enduring. And and then he talks about final inspection. Now, some of you are are contractors or builders or plumbers or electricians. You know about final inspection, right? You ever had a home project done and you have to get a permit and the inspector comes and you hold your breath because you want to actually use this thing that you've built And the metaphor he uses here is that Jesus is like the building inspector. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. This is not um, a verse about the fires of hell or uh, what the Catholics use as their main evidence of purgatory. It's a symbolic fire of testing. Okay, here's what happens. People live their life. Churches live their life. And you don't really get a report card um, till the end. You stand before Jesus like inspection day, and he tells you how you did. And the testing is like that fire. And only those things, the lives, the ministry, the churches that were well-architected, that were well-built, pass through. And they become like our, our treasures in heaven, made of gold. And the rest just sort of burns up, right? It's like, it's like you get a house built, and the guy says, oh, it'll withstand an earthquake. Well, you don't really know until you have an earthquake, right? Our lives, our churches are like that. They're, they're either poorly or wisely constructed. They're, they're either built with wisdom or they're built with foolishness. And it's, it's not a salvation issue, okay? It's not like, it's more like, did you, 
the things you do with your money and your time and your resources really matter. And so there will be a judgment. And if you're honest enough to admit that you get frustrated because sometimes people in the church and sometimes people out the church seem to get away with murder and do horrible things, and you say, is there no justice? Well, one day there will be justice. It'll all get straightened out. And and one day we're all going to get judged. So you and I need to wait for that day and be building our lives anticipating that day. There's a, there is a reward for those people and for those churches that are faithful. Three times in Matthew 6, Jesus gives specific examples uh, that God does reward. But your reward may not happen immediately. It may not happen in this lifetime even. It may be a day you stand before Jesus and Jesus looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you just don't want to be the guy that's standing before Jesus and he looks at you and it's like, it's all going to burn. I still love you. You're still my kid. I'm still letting you in. But what you gave your energy to, what you gave your life to, the family you built, the company you built, the ministry you built, it's not fit for my kingdom. It didn't produce eternal treasure. And that's going to be a sober day. And I I want us individually and collectively to stand before Jesus and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. But between today and that day, it means architecting well and doing things with excellence and being faithful. And if you're struggling with this because you say, "I I thought we were all about grace. This seems about works. I think we're talking about two different things. For instance, if you're here today and you think that by being a good person, by being a moral person, by um, working hard, that you're going to make it into heaven, that is not how it works. You're saved by grace. Jesus lived the life. Jesus died the death. Jesus accomplished the victory through his resurrection. Jesus takes away sin. And it's Jesus who saves you, not yourself. And he gives this salvation as a gift. And that's, that's all true. But, but, his saving grace um, enables us to live a life of good works and faithfulness. You know, most Christians think, I'm saved, I'm done. No, I'm saved, I begin. That's, that's really what it's about. Go be the church, right? So when Paul says in Ephesians, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this is a gift of God through Jesus. And then he says, to do the good works that God appointed in advance for us to do. We're saved by grace and then empowered by grace to do good works of ministry. And so when Paul says in verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Paul says, I'm, I'm good at building churches by the grace of God. I mean, it's not being arrogant. He's saying, God has enabled me to do a good job, and so I do a good job. That's grace. So let me ask you this. You're standing before Jesus on inspection day. How does that go for you? Um, is it a great day? 
you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or some of you thinking, that would be a tragic day because uh, there's a lot of things I've put off. My relationships, my service, my gifts, there's a lot of things in my life that, that frankly aren't well architected. I haven't put a lot of work into them. They're kind of shoddily, haphazardly put together. And they're not going to pass through that testing flame. I want to invite the the team to come up. And if you're not a Christian today, um, respond by giving your life to Jesus. that, That he would become the Lord of glory in your life, the highest authority. You do what he says. You go where he says. You, you do what he did. You repent of sin. You, you know that it messes up relationships. And so for those of you who are Christians this morning, we continually repent. We continually come before God and say, you know what? Um, worldly wisdom has really messed me up. And, and I got a lot of junk that I need to unlearn because it's, it's often not congruent with the truth that's been revealed by the Holy Spirit. I love these words. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone and not retake it. I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation.